Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's fab to have you here and if you're new to the show, the hugest of welcomes. Just to give you the heads up, if you sign up to the H&P newsletter, you're in with a chance of winning one of our chocolate bars. Now, hands up any of you who are like me and have large feet. I'm not sure if your go-to is the same as mine, which is trainers and flip-flops. I think probably they make our feet even larger. So when I saw an article in Forbes with the title Entrepreneur Making Stylish Larger Sized Footwear More Accessible, I was immediately hooked to read more and ask the founder onto the show. Our guest business is one helping break down the barriers for LGBTQ plus fashion. It's a gender-free, multi-award-winning vegan footwear brand specialising in larger size feet and has been featured in Vogue, The Economist, BBC Women's Hour, The Guardian and Drapers, to name but a few. You'll discover our guest to be a remarkable woman aged only 27 and with her purpose oozing out of every pore. She's also midst writing a book about the landscape of black British business. So time to introduce our guest... Shikenya Fraser, founder, Shikenya Shoes. Hello and welcome to H&P, Shikenya. Hi, Amelia. What a great introduction. I love it. Thank you so much. I feel so humble. So your innovation is refreshing and your vision one very few would probably ever have. What was your fire to founding Shikenya Shoes in 2017? Gosh, I think mainly it was just tiredness. I think I had truly just become fed up of not being able to find shoes in my size so I'm five foot nine I have a size nine foot and I've been that height and had that size foot since I was 11 years old so can you imagine starting secondary school and you're the tallest girl in your year so as people started to catch up to me it made me feel really uncomfortable but I'm digressing And it really affected my confidence growing up, not being able to find shoes. And I had to wear really what I considered to be very ugly boy, quote unquote, looking shoes um, that my mum had to get in really odd shops around Oxford Street. But it all kind of came to a head when I was finishing university. I was looking for shoes for my graduation dress. I couldn't find any that I felt like matched it and matched in style. And I was just expressing, you know, my fatigue and my tiredness to one of my LGBTQ plus friends. And they explained that that was an issue for them. And that's where the brand was born. I literally just said, middle fingers up. I'm going to go and create a brand that no one else has dared to create. And we're going to be free from gendered marketing. And they're going to be made for all people. And how did you learn about shoes? Did you go on a course? So the only course I went on was the YouTube course, the YouTube (laughs) School of Life. And so I studied English literature and language at university and thought I might have become a journalist, but became quite disenfranchised by that space. Um, Then thought I might have gone on and done a PhD in something really left wing, like feminist studies or something, because that's right up my alley. So I took a year, well, I'd say a year. I've, I've taken about two years learning all that I can about footwear design, the different parts of a shoe. So that would just be me like buying shoes and ripping them apart and understanding the structures of a shoe and sampling them on all different types of people you know when I did my first collection the heels kept falling off because I didn't preempt that people with maybe size 13 feet might be a particular height in a certain weight which meant that I had to have the heels reinforced in a type of way and then there was all this work that I did in making sure that our sizing was right so I used to hang out (laughs) at the Starbucks (laughs) at Tottenham Court Road 
And I would have these people come in, sometimes guys in suits, and I'd just like, could I measure your feet? And they'd look at me and wonder. I'd be like, I promise it's not for anything kinky. I'm starting a shoe brand. It's for people with large size feet, and I promise I'll buy you a coffee. And people were so gracious and helpful. So that is how I learned about shoes, sizing, um, and putting together a brand, really. <laughs> and how did you find people to make them? Because presumably, mm. it was certainly in the early stages, small volumes. Yeah. Where did you head off to? That took about six months. So I got a lot of support from the Prince's Trust. Um, and if you don't know, they support young entrepreneurs with like key mentorship, um, different programs that they can go on. And I was given a really fantastic business mentor who had connections in um, different areas of the world. But it was so difficult for me to find a manufacturer because I had made the pledge that if I'm going to be an intersectional brand, that means that I can't be, you know, liberating people here over the in the globalized West and then oppressing people somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So finding a factory that, you know, paid their workers a fair wage that was in good working condition and obviously produced a good product was really, really difficult. And that was literally just months and months of hunting down factories, sometimes even having to go to Google Maps and finding key contacts. And now now we have manufacturers in Spain, Portugal that make our shoes, and then our boxes and other materials are made in China. That's incredible. How did you raise the startup funding? So we started as a um, Kickstarter campaign, but through the Prince's Trust, when you put a business plan together and they think it's robust enough, they you're eligible for a grant. So I took a £4,000 grant from the Prince's Trust, set up the Kickstarter, outlining the mission and what the brand wanted to do and why it was so necessary. And we literally sold out that first collection in, what, 48 hours? I had to call, wow. the, manufa I had to call the manufacturer and ask if they could produce some more. And I guess what was really overwhelming there too there was like an option, I think, where you could like donate five pounds for like a nice handwritten card and a thank you. And I think a lollipop or a sweet or something. And loads and loads of people um, took that option. So it, it was so reaffirming that obviously I was serving a community that needed it, but also people were willing to get behind the cause too. And how many people do you have working with you? So we currently have three people. It's myself, a social media director, and someone who works on editorial for like the blogs. We want to see how we can monetize that side of things. And honestly, that team is fantastic. You know, for a very long time, it was just me on my own as a single island. And I guess as you kind of get to know yourself as an entrepreneur and as a leader, I realized that I had <laughs> severe control issues. I thought I was the only person that could do it right. And it wasn't until I surrendered that, you know, I need support and I need help and um, I got that team and now I'm so thankful for them because genuinely we wouldn't be at the stage that we're at now if it wasn't for their innovation their insight and their and their just shared grit and determination and trusting the vision I suppose I mean if building a team is the most challenging thing isn't it and from speaking to to guests on the show and also from my own experience is that if you get it wrong you can go belly up but if you get it right you're on a really you're in a really good position and you can really push forward with growing yeah and i think i was i'm in a very unique position with finding that perfect team because you know i've worked in i've worked in many organizations in various sectors where i've seen what not so productive leadership looked like and i've always said that i never wanted to be one of those leaders and you know i kind of work in the hr field in my full time work um alongside the business in diversity and inclusion so i think i had the upper hand in knowing exactly how to ha pick people the best 
best and most diverse talent and how to hold them when they're in that position. So not only can they shine and be their true self, but they can also develop and grow and have like a real sense of worth in the role. Um, So I've been very, very blessed. I'm very thankful for them. And what is incredible to Shikenya is that you are, this is your side hustle. I mean, yeah, I, I, hate, I hate using <laughs> the word side hustle because it's much more than that. But you are such a busy, busy woman in mm. the way that you've got, you're a VC scout at Ada Ventures, inclusion business partner at MTC. I think you look after your mum, is that right as well? Yeah, I do. I do. I'm her main carer. You're her main carer. And, you know, that is a huge challenge. And when I set up my chocolate business, I was only juggling one other job alongside my chocolate business, which was practice manager of a doctor's practice. And I found it really difficult to do because at times Mm. I'd be feeling really hacked off that I was sitting being a practice manager and I wanted to get into chocolate. And when I was in the chocolate, I was thinking, I need to be a practice manager because I need the money to come in. So, (laughs) you know, it's, it's really difficult. How do you juggle it? To be honest, I don't think about it. I think I've, I have I came to terms with the fact that I would have to juggle many balls for a long time. But I, I always keep that end vision in mind. Quite frankly, you know, when you when you say all that, I don't know how I do it, but I find a way that work. I find a way that works, and I think because I'm so passionate about all of those things, I I find time for them. And amongst all those things that I'm doing, I still manage to get eight to ten hours of sleep a night. I mean, that is seriously impressive. Woo! I love a sleep. I could sleep longer. But I think I also realise that the things I'm doing are really worthwhile and I, I'm really passionate about leaving a legacy on earth that is just beyond myself and my kin and making sure that when I leave the world, it's more equitous, it's more diverse and feel people feel more included in whatever I've, I've put my hand to. Um, and I guess it is that, God, that decentering of myself that keeps me going, that keeps my 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 engine burning. But then also on top of that, I also have ADHD, which means I'm always <laughs> in need of perpetual motion. And of course, you know, that I'm prone to burnout sometimes. But I think all of that, all of those, all of those things coupled with my neurodiversity is what keeps me ticking. When you go into the burnout mode, how do mm. you then recharge again? You know, for a long time, I used to really fight the burnout phase and feel quite like a failure that I was so tired and I couldn't keep going. But, you know, as I've got older, I kind of surrender to that tiredness. And I say, (laughs) with each burnout that I go through, I am more aware of it coming on. And so it tends to mean that I just slow down. It means that I get out in nature. I make sure that I'm not eating muffins (laughs) in the middle (laughs) of the day and I go to the gym um, and I may be taking a cat nap and doing whatever is needed for me to relax. You know, I went through a semi kind of like burnout maybe three or four weeks ago and I could feel it coming on, right? And I said, you know what, Shikenya, we're not going to do this. We're not going to hit rock bottom. What you're going to do is put a few things in place that make you feel good. One thing is an elaborate, doing your elaborate skincare routine. You're going to add two more steps in that. Take time to massage your face, massage your skin, have a bath twice a day, you know, drink good wine, but not too much of it. you know get into a new Netflix program I'm currently watching Peaky Blinders because of this (laughs) near burnout experience I think it's about just returning to oneself in what whatever way in whatever that means to you and that usually just means in you know getting out and looking after myself and taking a good bath you're really insightful I mean it's I hate saying for being so young because that sounds as if I'm sort of 
judging you in, in, in a different way. And I don't mean it like that. But I think back to when I was 27 and I was still very much learning and growing and I didn't have that insight. Where do you think it comes from? I think it comes from being the youngest child of five with there being a 14-year age gap. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So when my mum had me, she was nearly 40 um, and she thought she was going through the early menopause, but it was just me and her stomach doing a peace <laughs> sign. And um, so my siblings, when I was born, my siblings were 13, 14. They were teenagers. Um, so in my childhood, I didn't really grow up around other children. I grew up around adults. So I think I, that I, I attribute that to my old soul. And also, you know, when I was younger, my mum cared for my nan, which meant that I also had to take on a little bit of that responsibility um, and missed out on typical, you know, childhood things like, you know, summer holidays were spent inside. But she still found time to take me to really fantastic galleries and to the theatre when she could. So I think all of those aspects um, and being around adults when I was younger has given me that old soul, should I say. I totally get you on old souls and, and new souls. And yes, I'm very much into all of that. Now, I've read that you have said that the Prince's Trust quite literally saved your life. Now, I know yeah. that you got the grant and you you got support with the business. Mm. But would you be happy to share with us a little bit more about how they they did keep you going? Of course, I think it's it's really necessary to my story also as an individual. So like when I went to university... I decided to stay at home and I decided to go to a university, what, 20 minutes away from my home. And growing up in Hackney, very diverse cultural hub of different ethnicities, languages, people from all across the world. And, you know, growing up, I had kind of, <laughs> I knew what racism and discrimination was, right? Um, but they were almost concepts to me. They were very foreign to me. And it wasn't until I went to university and I was one of the only black girls that studied English literature and language. I think there was maybe five of us across English literature, film and linguistics, five black people, I mean, um, that I guess I experienced what France Fanon calls epidermalization, where you're seen for, you know, your skin colour first. Mm -hmm. And that was extremely, extremely difficult for me. And I say, along with the stress of university, um, really weighed me down. I would say that I was extremely depressed, extremely disenfranchised. I didn't feel safe. By my third year of uni, I kind of stopped going to lectures, um, stopped going out because I just did not feel, I felt like an utter imposter. And I, I would say that that was one, maybe one of the lowest parts of my life. And when I finally handed in my dissertation, I think I got like a two week extension because I was just all over the place. When I think about it, I don't know how I did so well, but that's for another conversation. I just didn't know where I wanted to go. I, you know, I wanted to go into journalism, but I had done so many internships and I had already started up a business running a magazine to help young people get into journalism because, you know, getting an internship was so difficult to prove that we were, were good writers. And that was just such a white and uh, uh, in, um, inho inhospitable place for me. And I, after experience university, I didn't want to go and do a PhD because I just could not read another text. And I thought, you know, I'm going to start this business with everything that I had experienced. And I just literally Googled online how to start your own business. And I think Prince's Trust was one of the first people that came up. So I put my details in. And about two weeks later, I was put on this crash course where they teach you about the ins and outs of business. And I guess the rest was history. But to be honest, if I hadn't found that website, if I hadn't found the Prince's Trust website... To be honest with you, Amelia, I don't know if I'd be here today because I didn't know, I didn't understand that there was a process to things. 
I didn't truly understand to trust the process. And I was just so fatigued, so, so fatigued. It's incredible. So do your siblings have their own businesses at all? No, I'm the first business person in my family. Well done. <laughs> Thank you so much. What do they think about it? What's your mum think about it? Obviously very pl- proud. I think um, I'd write about this a bit in the book, you know, for, you know, for parents that, you know, have ventured to England, you know, the one thing they want for their children is security. So, you know, my brothers and sisters have very secure jobs in law and social services and IT. And then here's, you know, the younger ones saying, I want to be an entrepreneur. There's all this risk. Um, <laughs> when they're like, please, you'll be a fantastic headmistress. So I guess there was that worry because entrepreneurship is not something that, you know, was on their radar. Definitely wasn't on my radar when I was growing up and I was going to school. It was about getting A-stars you know going to Oxbridge or going to Russell Group University and falling into the corporate machine so there was some anxiety to start with um but they I think also that privilege of being the youngest child where they'll be where they were like she'll be all right um so they are very very proud um and sometimes I might get the comment of it's not too late to be a head teacher you'd be a fantastic (laughs) one but I have to remind them I, I couldn't do that I'd be too, I'd be much too liberal. Like the kids, the kids would have coloured hair and all this type of stuff and I'd want to ban the school uniform. I see you running a very cool, funky, dynamic academy. So watch this space. It would be, maybe. (laughs) That might be the next thing I add to my list of things. With juggling so many jobs that you've got on the go, I -hmm. mean, is that where you want to be or do you want to make the leap and go full time with your business? What, What would it take to make you do that or to get you to do it? Yeah, my dream would be to go full time with the business. Like I foresee myself leading the business and maybe writing on the side. I absolutely adore writing. And so I see myself as being like a fashion CEO and writer too. I absolutely love the work that I do, but it pays very well. And it means that if I ever need to put money into my business, I can. And it means I don't have to take any money out of my business. So my full time job sustains me and my household. Um, But I do hope in the near future, hopefully in the next 12 um, to 24 months to be able to go full-time with the fashion business but you know it's just so difficult I'm always wrestling with like my personal feelings about ethics and sustainability and there are so many times I still continue to you know sacrifice profit for sustainability and I know people will say VCs will say you've got to drive that profit but I am definitely not going to be trying to damage and the beautiful world that we live in and no one must come to harm for my product either so it's a fine balance of all of those different things I bet you find a way I know it but there is that importance of being sustainable financially as well as with the product and I used to be in your camp and therefore the financial side of the business of my chocolate businesses were not really sustainable and Mm. there is that sort of double-edged sword because in a way the finance isn't the most important thing often but yet you've got to have it to feed the other side and it's it's a really difficult thing to get right I think don't you yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult balance. It's a very difficult dance. Um, and I realise, I think I also accept the, how can I phrase this? For a very long time in my life, I, I didn't really understand the individual privileges that I have. You know, I think when you're a woman, when you're a black woman, when you're neurodiverse and you grow up working class, you feel as though the world is stacked against you. And I'm not saying by any means that there aren't systemic pressures against black <laughs> working class neurodiverse women. But I have that privilege of, you know, having a job and having a certain financial security through education and through experience in order to work and 
drive that business forward. So, you know, I always, I'm, I'm never going to mislay my privilege. Wherever I can use my privilege to do better, I'm going to do that. And and I'm using my privilege of being able to work and have a very well-paying full-time job to ensure that I can put all the profits that I make back into my business to serve the community that needs it most. And it's going to grow. I mean, that way is the best way to see it grow. And therefore you can employ more people. And as you say, your community will be even more supported. I mean, it's a really, it's very, very exciting. Who or what, Shekenya, has framed your thinking, do you think? Oh, that's such a juicy question. You know, I have to say my mother's part of that. She's a very thoughtful, resourceful woman. You know, that craftiness of being able to turn, you know, nothing into something. I always, I've actually never shared this with anyone, but I'll share it with you. When I was younger, I don't think I had prick stick for something. I must have been maybe six or seven. I don't know why we didn't have prick stick. I don't know if she is because she didn't have the money to buy it. But she took flour out of the cupboard and mixed it with water and said, use this. And I remember thinking, is this woman crazy? But I did it anyway and it worked perfectly. And I think just seeing that resourcefulness from such a young age has made me an extremely resourceful individual. And I guess in many ways she has framed my thinking. And she's also quite radical. You know, she was born in the 50s, but, you know, she's a child of the 70s. So an activist, a free thinker, a liberal. Um, So I grew up around really rich texts and reading from a really young age. And she, she, even though we didn't have much money, every holiday I was taken to museums and galleries and to the theatre she'd take me to theatre every year she'd save up to take me to theatre and I remember maybe being nine and we went to an exhibition somewhere and I saw an original Basquiat and I remember she was explaining to me who Basquiat was and I said one day I'm gonna have a painting like that in my house and she said to me you will Kenny you will so I guess in a lot of ways my my mum has been the person that's framed my thinking with all her liberal thoughts and texts (laughs) she sounds a very special lady was she She is very special did she come across the UK or were her parents in the UK no, she came across. So she came across in 1958 um, when she was only four years old and she's been in England ever since. And does she, does she dare I say it, does she like our little island? I mean, she feels like, an, she, feel, she feels very British through and through. But, you know, it's, I think it's a difficult one. And I, I know that that's something that she wrestles with because obviously coming to England at the start of the 60s, she's seen and heard things that, you know, I could never imagine hearing or seeing. But yeah, she, definitely in terms of how far Britain's come, we often have very kind of like disruptive conversations about systemic issues. But for her, seeing how far Britain's come, I think she definitely does like this little island. I don't know whether her daughter would agree, though. <laughs> no, but, you know, it's really refreshing that, that you are who you are and she is who she is and mm-hmm. the progress and, and the need for more and more progress to be made. Yeah. But I do, you know, I think that somewhere along the line we're all progressing, we're trying to move forward, mm-hmm. um, but maybe at slow, slower paces. Who knows? It's Slow pace. Yeah. I think that that's also a problem with us in... <laughs> us in general in society I don't know what's caused it I'm pretty sure there's maybe some sociological reason but we want things now 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 Mm. it must it must it must be us who has it but we have to understand that legacy and change it will take generations and we just have to do whatever we can to ensure that we were real progressive cogs in making the world more inclusive and a better place and we might not see that day but you know 
our those that come after us might um and laying in that kind of i don't even know what it's called like in that calm of knowing that you're part of something bigger i know that sounds like such an airy fairy answer but well no it doesn't i mean i think our gen my generation so i'm 50 Mm -hmm. i think i hope we we made some difference but your generation are so dynamic and on it and just i think with the whole social media thing is that the power that the message can now be delivered so much quicker yeah 100 percent. i think i'm i guess i think i'm a i think i'm a millennial cusp gen z so i was born 1994 so i had a little bit of a childhood without (laughs) without the internet and technology i used to have to sit by the telephone stand to get dial up (laughs) oh my god and i used to make that nina or nina or something (laughs) throwing me way back to pixo days in my space um um, yeah, Gen Z. I'm very excited for Gen Z and the generations that come after them because they are so vocal and they genuinely do not give a damn and they are down for the causes in a radical way um, and they genuinely are rallying the troops. So, yeah, I'm very excited to see where things go in the social space. Yes, very exciting. Now, back onto the business. Yes, sorry. <laughs> what, no, no, no. What skill set do you think that you've had to draw on to to get your business up and running and the way that it's moving, which is forward? Oh, that's a difficult one. I think my, okay, I think maybe my people skills. I think I've had to really put myself out there. I was an incredibly shy child and my mother really, really trained that out of me. So using all those skills of (laughs) being gregarious and daring and, um, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get, I've had to pull on. And also, which is a difficult one because of my ADHD, is patience and research, is really taking my time to get to know the product, to understand what I'm doing, um, and to go about it carefully and meaningfully. So I say those are the two things that have been really um, momentous to the success of the business. And also that authenticity. I would like to think that I'm quite an authentic leader um, and business owner, owner. If anyone knows me in the social space, I'm extremely vocal about social issues social political issues extremely left-wing um I'm an intersectional feminist and I try to let that carry through all the work that I do so I think it's those three things that kind of um are the skills that have brought the business to where it is today how do you find the emotional roller coaster of having your own business (laughs) if that's an answer I mean, it's a difficult one. I think it gets better and better. I'm definitely um, becoming more robust as I get older. But, you know, just, what, two weeks ago, I was crying at 10am because UPS was holding our stock and saying, that you know, if you don't give us this code, we're going to burn your stock. And I just broke out into tears and had to pour myself a glass of wine and say, you know, Shikanya, you're going to have to pull your socks together. And when I think about that situation, obviously quite traumatic to hear that you're crying and having to pour yourself a glass of wine at 10am. Yeah, it's quite early to start. Yeah, it's quite early to start. But, you know, when <laughs> if I think about that happening maybe three, four, five years ago, I would have been on the floor. I wouldn't have got up for two days. I would have felt completely defeated. I often look at that emotional roller coaster as an opportunity to learn more about myself, as an opportunity to try new things versus internalizing that as myself being a failure. Because I think for a very long time, whether it be through, you know, academia or business or through, you know, working out there in the world, I've always internalized 
setbacks and failures as something that's extremely personal and it's not and if I'm someone who says that they want to be a really great leader and want to lead a really fantastic business it's going to require for me to be able to bounce back very quickly and be that backbone for people on days where I I feel very weak and tired so I guess I look at (laughs) those emotional setbacks as opportunities to grow and become a leaner entrepreneur to use the phrase of Silicon Valley. <laughs> Who do you draw on though when you're when you're going through these times? Is there someone or something that you draw on for support? Of course, yes. Yeah. So my family, my immediate family are fantastic. Um, my sisters are fantastic. My mother's fantastic. Um, I have a great friendship group who are always there to support me. Um, and I'm very blessed in that respect. And I think also the fact that I have when I first started out, I really struggled because I didn't have any friends that were trying entrepreneurship. They had all gone on to magic law for, ma- magic circle law firms and were lawyers and doctors and accountants. And I was the only entrepreneur. So finding, you know, strength in community has also been very helpful. So, you know, my close friends, family and my, you know, colleagues in the entrepreneurial space are always there to um, provide guidance, love and care. And sometimes a little hold when I when I feel weak. Yeah, hold is, is good. What do you think is lacking in the area to support young founders, Chikenya? Well, I think that, that that's a difficult that's a difficult question because it's it's different for each entrepreneur. I mm-hmm. think one of those things is that again, this is kind of like geographical and it's also rooted in social class and I'll speak from my my perspective as like a working class black person like from the inner city you know entrepreneurship is not something that we're taught about or know about in school yeah we have business studies but we're not taught the ins and outs of what it means to start a business what different types of business there are when I speak to my friends I met at university who went to private school those were things those were privileges that were afforded to them at a really young age and also again (laughs) There's so many, I think it was the British Business Bank that found that, you know, generational wealth is the number one key determiner to starting and keeping a successful business. Mm. And I think that, you know, access to funding, which is why I love the Prince's Trust so much and why I am a VC scout for Aid Ventures, to help level that playing field, to give young people and underestimated founders an opportunity to try and test their ideas um, and sometimes fail. Um, because the only thing that is missing there, it sometimes is economical. It's just money. Because I think it was only two years ago that I found out about friends and family round. <laughs> found out about that people can just raise money with their friends and family. They just got £50,000 asking their uncle, their mum <laughs> and the family dog. Whereas I don't, I don't think I know anyone with more than £2,000 in their bank account at the time. So, yeah, definitely, you know, education and um, more funding. Yeah, I mean, I did friends and family and I raised £7,000, which helped me get into Selfridges and start start off. But that was before crowdfunding. I mean, crowdfunding and Kickstarter is yeah. good. That does help a lot. It does loads. But do you think, I mean... Um, I used to live in Peckham and my brother mm. lives in Brixton and I always wanted to to get into the schools and, you know, because I feel that everybody has something inside them, everybody. And as you say, there is this sort of thing of generational wealth or, you know, we're privileged with where we come from. And do you think there there is scope for people to go in and to, to teach in these schools and to open people's minds and to give them that sort of 
motivation and that positivity. Do you see that happening? I see that happening for sure. So like part of my stories for a year, I worked um, in a school. I worked in a PRU. So that's for kids who have been kicked out of school, usually for behavioural issues. Sometimes it's that they've got undiagnosed learning needs. And sometimes it's just that they've fallen in with the wrong crowds. And there I would talk to them about business and the things that I did. And they felt really, really inspired. You know, I really, truly believe... <laughs> you know, in the idea of like windows and mirrors, if there is no representation, if you don't know something exists, if you cannot see it, then you can't become it. And if you haven't got a window to look out of, you can't see what's out there, right? So, you know, taking this to young people in schools, I think would be, would be really, really helpful you know, and I, and I'll share this because he's doing really fantastic <laughs> things right now. And I won't say his name, but a young guy that I used to help with his English when I worked in this crew, he recently turned 18 and he messaged me on Instagram to say, you're going to be so proud, but I'm going to university in September. So wow. I said, I'm so, I'm so, so proud of you. But when I first met him, when he was about 15 years old, he had fallen into county lines and was selling drugs. And I said to him, like, you know, why do you do this? And he said, you know, like, you don't know what it's like to be working class. I said, I grew up in the exact same conditions as you but I understand there's specific pressures for you why should you do this and he said you know because I can't do anything else all I can do is sell drugs and I said mm. have you ever thought about being an entrepreneur and he said that's for he said to me and I quote that's for them man like Bill Gates and I said what you're doing right now outside of the exploitation of doing county lines selling drugs after school is a form of entrepreneurship you are continuously on call you you're good with numbers you're good with people you have all of these transferable skills and he started to laugh and I was like you need to listen to me you have all of these transferable skills which means that you could be the most fantastic salesperson you could be the most fantastic entrepreneur but in a legal way and he thought about it. And about three months later, he stopped selling drugs and started reading a business books online. That is <laughs> reading business absolutely books mind blowing. I mean, it's and now, and now he's going to university to study business. I don't know, business and something um, at Nottingham. And I'm so, so proud, you know? So I think all it takes is for someone to plant a seed and to provide, provide an alternative and that's why I always cite that privilege of having a mother who was so invested in like the cultural arts of taking me to the theatre taking me to museums um, and taking me to art galleries because I was able to see another world outside of you know the very small hub of Hackney which at the time was extremely extremely impoverished and uh, and not such a nice place to live. What do you think's been your greatest challenge so far and what have you learned from it? Would you say? Oh, I think my greatest challenge so far has been, I think, my own personal ideas about myself and those feelings of being an imposter. You know, I, when I was younger, I was quiet. I was larger. I was, you know, very dark skinned. Um, I was bullied for all of these things. And I think for a very long time, I carried around all of those horrible things that people said to me as a child. And I didn't feel worth it. I didn't feel like a worth it individual, despite all of the accolades that I had. So I think the biggest challenge for me even on days where I don't feel so powerful or so strong or so able is reminding myself that I'm worth it, reminding myself that I am a worthy leader and reminding myself that I have a mission to do whilst I'm here on earth. So if there's one thing I'm always trying to kick down, if there's one thing I'm always fighting, got my fists out, it's for that imposter syndrome because she is a, she is a vibrant cow. 
<laughs> do you think that your um, the imposter syndrome is the inner critic? That sort of negative, sort of internal yeah. monologue. I mean, that, I mean, if we're going to call it that, one hundred percent of just feeling of asking yourself, like, why me? Like, even when I I have this conversation with my editor all the time for my book, and I just say, you know, like, are you sure I should be doing this? Like, don't you have anyone else who could write about this? And she's like, Shikenya, you're the right person. And every time I go to write a chapter and edit something, I'm having those same internal conversations with myself. Um, but I guess I think that's one of the things that makes me want to continuously do better and try new things and prove to myself, actually, no, you're quite deserving to be in this space. Have you had any serendipitous moments at all with your business or in life? God, all the the time. And that's why I said, like, right at the beginning of the conversation about trusting the process, where at the time, you know, you can feel really beaten down and you can just feel like giving up. But then just something comes to you, something happens, almost like a sign from the universe where that situation last year made sense. Um, And I think that that is why... I'm a such more faithful person. I think that is why I bounce back so quickly now f- through like struggle and adversity, whether it be in my business or my career, because I truly trust that everything that happens is for a reason, because everything in my life up until this point has proven that. It is. It's the sort of trusting the flow, isn't it? Yeah, you've got to. It's really difficult, though. It is. And every now and again, it's like swimming and you're like, oh, this is OK. And then all of a sudden, you, oh, God, I've got to get out. And you start panicking and then it sort of backfires a bit. And then you have to think, come on, just trust this. You're going to get right, over this right, little yeah, sort yeah. of blip. Yeah, but, and, and it I, is a blip. It is a blip. It is a blip. But at the time, sometimes it's very raw. Yeah. Oh, I've had some raw moments. Like even when I look back to, you know, when I was trying to get into journalism or thought I might want to be a journalist, like the rejection after rejection after rejection and not getting any internships, I was really beaten down. It it felt so incredibly personal. But now I realise that those rejections were the catalyst for me to then say, I'm going to try and do my own thing. There's a problem. I'm going to solve it. And here I am now. So, you know, just understanding that every disappointment is truly a blessing. How did you get over the rejections at the time? Oh, by crying, lying on my floor, um, things like that. (laughs) Um, And really internalising them. You know, at the time, I would say that, you know, I just felt like, what was the point? Like, what was the point? And I would cry for hours and I would lie in bed and I wouldn't get out of bed for days because it truly felt like the end of the world. It truly felt like, you know, if I can't become a journalist, if I if I can't, if I, you know, I'm tired of university, if I can't go and do my PhD, who will I be and what will I become? And you know what, actually, I'm just remembering something is that about, you know, driving forces. And there's one other voice that comes into my mind. And it's of my um, old Spanish teacher. Her name was Anne-Marie Long. Shout out Miss Anne-Marie Long. (laughs) And uh, I love Spanish but I just wasn't very good at it. You know, just the grammar, speak it really well, but the grammar just never clicked with me. And the day of my Spanish exam, I went into school and I said to Miss Long, I'm not going to sit this exam. And she's Irish. I'm not even going to try and mimic her gorgeous Cork accent. And she said, Shikenya, what do you mean you're not going to do this exam? I said, you know me, Miss Long. I don't do anything unless I know I'm going to do it well. And she said to me, you know, you are not, you are not the things that you do. 
And I started to cry and she said, you are not defined by the grades that you get. You're defined by the lovely person that you are inside. So you're going to sit down and you're going to do this exam, whether you get an F, a U or an A. And I always think about what she says, is that all these things that we put our minds to, all of these goals that we give ourselves, if the core's not right, then nothing is really worth it. So that always grounds me. Those words from her always ground me that, you know, who I am as a person, my values, um, what I stand for, what I'm trying to do is, is bigger than any failure. You know, if the business, if the business does, you know, tanker and I'm knocking on woods, if the business does go down, I gave it a valiant effort. And that's a testament to my character. And yeah, there might be a few few tears as it goes down. But if there's one thing I always will have is is knowing that I tried. And I think that's really important. And I I don't ever. It's like people say to me, "You, you gave up your chocolate business." And I'm like, I didn't give it up. I moved on. I yeah. evolved. Mm. I changed. And it's this whole thing, Shikenia, that I see life in in chapters. But yeah. if for any reason your business doesn't work, and I feel in my water yours is going to really work but if it Mm. doesn't it taught you as you say so much and then you go on to the next thing and the next thing but I mean what an impressive teacher to still her what she said still resonate with you and sit so deeply inside you yeah yeah and that's why I think that you know again representation and kindness um, in schools is so 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 important I'm so blessed to have gone to the school that I went to because I really did have really caring teachers a really diverse set of teachers um, and I had a great model of like especially women of color in leadership when I was growing up that I know that a lot of people didn't have even though it was in the school setting but that's still leadership you know um, and that inspired me to know that I could also do that even even if it was subconscious Okay, we're going to move because we've got to get to the chocolate. So oh, we're gonna yeah. Move, we're going to move into the quick fire round and then we hit our chocolate break. I can hear okay. rustling go ahead. You can't <laughs> open it before we get there. You're not allowed. Let me put that down. Okay. Okay, so optimist, pessimist. Oh, optimist. Introvert, extrovert or an ambivert, which is a mix. Omnivert. Perfectionist or non-perfectionist. Oh, perfectionist. Early bird or night owl. Ooh, is there one for someone in between? Depends on the season. (laughs) I'm in between, I'm in between. So now we can tuck into our chocolate, which we have been waiting for throughout the programme. And um, you tell us why we are tucking into a crunchy, which incidentally I found out was launched back in the 1920s. Yes, it's like one of those original chocolates. Original by J.S. Fry and Son, no less. So come on, why are we tucking into this? The crunchy is like my childhood favourite. Me and my mum would always eat a crunchy. She'd break it in half and I would have half. Um, And she doesn't really like chocolate, but I love like honeycomb stuff. So it was a nice little mix for both of us. Um, So at night time or on the way from school, we'd have a crunchy bar. She'd break it in half and we'd have half each. So it just always brings me back to home. The crunchy bar is one of those bars that when I'm feeling a little bit sad, I go and get to feel safe. I do, I do love a bit of a crunchy, but it is, as you say, it's the honeycomb just with a very thin mm. bit of milk chocolate. And I like mine in the fridge. Oh, yeah, I kept mine in the fridge. Look at us. <laughs> so then you have this really distinct sort of snap and bite mm. and chill factor. Now, while yeah. you're munching on that, have a think on what you perceive the word success and failure mean to you. Ah, oh, it's so difficult because I, I don't know. 
I think it's so individual to every individual, right? <laughs> Sound like I was rapping a song there. I think, <laughs> you know, I think it's up to every single person to define what success means to them. I think we live in a world, especially in the world of social media, where we're told what things like success look like um, and what beauty looks like, and the list goes on. But I think as individuals, we create our own definitions of success. And so if I was going to say what success meant to me, it would be being true to oneself and working on leaving a worthwhile legacy. And failure? And failure, I don't think is a dirty word. I think we look at failure as something that's dirty, um, something that should be shunned and kept quiet. But I think that failure is a necessary part of life. I think it's the place where you truly grow and you can grow out of your little tortoiseshell and become much more robust. So, you know, failure is necessary. It is, it is. So the really important part, I think, when you're running your business is to look after yourself. And at times I didn't. How important is incorporating well-being into your day? And do you manage to achieve it? I do. Um, so I start the day when I can, when it's not raining, with a walk or reading or reading something having long baths and if there's anything that I make time for every single day is my skincare routine and a long bath those are two foundations for me to lead me into my eight hours of, <laughs> to lead me into my eight hours of sleep um I think it's those things that ground me because for a very long time I didn't have a balance and I wasn't looking after myself well um and yeah, having time away from my phone. I know it sounds like a really radical concept in today's world, but there's times where like, I'll just turn my phone off and put it in my knicker drawer and I won't touch it all day. And don't you feel and refreshed? So, so refreshed. Mm. So, so refreshed um, to be away from external stimuli. And again, like, I don't know if that is down to the ADHD of me being easily distracted by flashes of light or seeing notifications. But just being able to focus in stillness is what is so helpful for me. So time away from technology and all that sound of the internet, good skincare and long baths. My God, do I love a long bath. What triggers your stress and how does it affect you physically and mentally and Oof. spiritually? I like a good bath too. <laughs> Oof. Um, what triggers my stress? I think it's, again, <laughs> with all the things that I do, it's just those general feelings of not only just being overwhelmed with the amount of things that you have to do, but feeling as though you're not doing them well. So I have no problem with wearing many different hats at one time, but I have to feel as though I'm wearing all those hats with style and pizzazz. I love that. <laughs> when I don't think I'm wearing those hats well, that's what triggers my stress. Um, and usually that's just because I've lost my focus and I've lost my grounding of understanding of what, what I need to prioritise. And that's why I always go back again, to no phone, no bath. Um, and the effect that has on me is just like disrupted sleep or, you know, irritability um, or very physical symptoms like, you know, just feeling, I guess, just feelings of being overwhelmed 
of having too much going on. I can't even explain it. I don't know if this is like a very specific thing for neurodiverse folk with my type of ADHD, but just feeling like you're receiving too much information. I could just be sitting in my home office and looking at the books is too much. <laughs> looking at the bookshelf is too much. Um, but that's why I then say, you know what, Shagan, you're going to go and soak in some pink Himalayan salt and take an hour out and come back, do your to-do list, highlight them, with your little system and say what you can do in 10 minutes, see what you can do in 20 minutes, see what you can do in an hour. And we're going to go at it this way. If that answers the question. That most definitely does. You reset your clock. You have to. It makes me think of there's a therapist. And I can't, I think the book was called You're Okay, I'm Okay, where they talk about the parent adult, adult child. Mm. And just hearing you, it almost as if you kick into the adult saying, right, this is what we're going to do. You're going to be fine. And, and you off have you to. go. Yeah, you have to. What music makes you feel good? And what book would you miss if it wasn't on your bookshelf? If you read books? Oh, what music makes me feel good? I'm going to say extremely lyrical and poetic music. And by that, it's anything by Florence and the Machine mm-hmm. and Frank Ocean. Those are my two foundational artists. And I'm sure they will be my two foundational artists for the rest of my life. And when I do find myself feeling overwhelmed, I go to my little playlist on Spotify and I listen to Florence and the Machine all day. She is so beautiful and so thoughtful with her language um, and what I consider to be poetry um, that always brings me back to home. And if there is any book that I would really, really miss, oh, that's a juicy one, um, if it didn't exist. I'm currently looking up. I'm swiveling around in my chair. Which one of which one of you might I miss? I think the one that I might miss is Roxanne Gay, Hunger. So Roxanne Gay writes this really, I guess, painful memoir about her body, body eating disorders, being you know a woman in the world, and that is always a text that I return to. And can I cheat and choose one more? Well, <laughs> normally I'm very strict, but I will let you as a treat, as a reward, as it's a Thank Friday you. late in the afternoon, Thank you can have you. a second. Thank you so much. And that is and that is Audrey Lord. Your Silence Will Not Protect You. Fantastic book of essays on intersectionality, womanhood, um, sexuality and politics that I just love reading because she had such fire driving that pen when she was penning her letters to people. What a revolutionary. Massive revolutionary. Now, thinking about the words hope and patience, mm-hmm. where have you had to have hope in your life or your business and where have you had to have patience? God, I think I have to have a hope every single day that the small things that I do every single day will lead to a bigger success, will lead to, you know my brand being the brand that all people can turn to with larger size feet. So I say that I have to wake up and be hopeful every single day. And I think patience comes in again at those moments when things aren't going right and where I want to stop and say, maybe you need to surrender yourself to this idea, Shikenia. You've opened up a conversation, you know, you've, you know, allowed maybe a few hundred people to see things in a new different light. Maybe that's the only place that you are meant to go to. Whenever I find myself going there, thinking that I want to blow out that candle, I always remember that, you know, 
it's a small, it's a slow progress to make progress sometimes. It's a slow process to make progress. And so I guess that those are the two places where I always find hope and I always find patience. And I think both of them are really foundational to being an entrepreneur. They absolutely are. What advice would you give to people who are running their own business at the moment and needing a bit of a pep or thinking about setting up their business or in the early stages? Anyone who's running their business, take time for you. I know that your business sometimes can feel like a rebellious child that you love so much, but things just don't, <laughs> things just aren't going out, going the way that you thought they would. So take time for you, recenter yourself and remember every single day, whether you say it aloud in front of a mirror, you think it or you write it down, why you started on the mission and why it's so important. And if you are starting out, the only advice I would give is to trust yourself and trust the reason why you're doing it and know that you are the right person for the job. And of course, always to do your research. Very wise words. So where can our lovely listeners find out more about you, your shoes, the book? Of course. So if you just type my name, Shikenya, into Google, most things will pop up. I'm very blessed to have a unique name. My mum wants to make everyone's life a bit difficult. Um, but you can find me on Instagram at Shikenya and you can find the brand at official Shikenya. I would like to say the hugest of thank yous to you, Shikenya. I have had such a fascinating chat. I feel I could chat with you for hours and hours and hours. I Same. really appreciate your valuable time. So thank you very, very much for coming on the show. No, thank you so much, Amelia. Anyway, before I go, it's time for my recommendation, which today is a book and then our quote. So the book I'm going to recommend is The Fortune Cookie Principle by Bernadette Jiwa. It's short stories, which are sort of like case studies of large businesses, of where they get things right, where they get things wrong. And at the end of each chapter, which is refreshingly short, so you can dip in and dip out, there are questions just to get you thinking. So really good book do check it out. And then the quote is from Anonymous and it is, we can choose to create of our lives an accident or adventure. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to subscribe, follow to get the latest episode. And if you're enjoying the show, it would be truly fab if you could rate and review it or better still share it with folk who may value a gem or two. Any book recommendations, quotes, songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Until the next time, however tough these times get, keep that very special inner sparkle you have shining. Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk. Find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope. <laughs>